Thank you, Linda, for playing. Thanks so much. It's hard for any time of year, really, to compare to Christmas time. And here we go once again already for 2019, coming to the end of a decade now. <clears throat> the Christmas season is so meaningful to Christians everywhere for obvious reasons. Advent, which began officially in the late 1800s, commemorates the coming of our Lord Jesus into the world with these candles that takes place over the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and then includes Christmas Eve. This year I thought we would take um, <clears throat> each of those Sunday mornings to talk about the theme that that Sunday's Advent candle represents because those themes have their foundation in Scripture. And so this morning is hope, next Sunday is preparation, speaking of God's promises through prophecy, which Jim will be preaching about then. Um, the first candle represents what might be the most prominent perspective in God's word when it speaks of the birth of Jesus, and that is hope. The promise of the Messiah brought divine hope to a people that were in spiritual bondage and impending judgment. Isaiah 9 was written in light of the fact that the house of David had failed to obey and honor God, so God was going to raise up the Assyrians to judge them, and yet Isaiah 9 is a message of hope. How could anyone have hope in the face of impending judgment? If God promised to act in his mercy regardless of that judgment, If God was going to redefine the future in light of his grace rather than define the future by the guilt of his people, and beloved, that is the basis of all Christian hope. God's grace redefines the future for us. We will never be able to close the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness by our good works. Our effort will not get us out of trouble. Our lives will not ultimately earn anything but God's judgment, but through the promise he has now fulfilled by sending his son, the future for all who believe in him for their salvation is not ultimately determined by their actions. Yes, the math demands judgment, but God's grace grants mercy that triumphs over judgment. That is the hope that shaped the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. God would redefine the future they had actually earned. God would define the future based on what he was going to do. He would base it and define it by his grace. God's promise of a savior gives hope by redefining the future, turning it from one of judgment to salvation. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for your perfect word. I pray, Lord, that you would hold my soul steady, give me clarity to speak for the sake of your great name, for the sake of all who are listening. Please help them do so. Help us all, Father, hear the word and believe it. I ask for this miracle of your grace to happen here this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our focus will be the promise in verses 6 and 7 that Christy read earlier, but first let's Set it in context. Let me read in Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious 
the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That word but, verse 1, is a very unexpected transition in the flow of Isaiah because all there is in 8.22, for example, is specifically the gloom of anguish. There will only be devastation in Israel and Judah because of coming judgment for their disobedience. So where does the change from the gloom of anguish to no gloom come from? Where did the prophet get that? Why is he speaking now in the past tense when the prophecy of what was to come was judgment? The tenses of the verb change here. Isaiah got that from his faith in the word of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah's gaze is not fixed on the coming judgment here. It's fixed on something beyond it. It's fixed on a better future. So the imminent invasion of the northern kingdom by Assyria, it is going to happen is relegated to the past for a moment here, as though it's already happened. Isaiah is going to do what God's prophets are able to do. He will see the tragedy of the present as though it's already past. That is what the sovereign hand of God allows for in the mouths of his prophets. Yes, the nation will be brought into contempt in the near future. Yes, They will be humiliated with national defeat, but that is not God's final word. By faith, Isaiah sees a beautiful reversal that God's grace is one day going to bring about. And that word is just as sure as the word about coming judgment. Devastation will give way to glory. In fact, what he's saying that he's so excited about is that the light will shine, the dawn will break in the very region that will be the first to experience God's judgment. It's no wonder then that Matthew draws attention in his gospel to the fact that it was in these northern parts with their mixed population of Jews and Gentiles that Jesus Christ would first proclaim the gospel. In Matthew 4, 15 and 16, he quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. To say that Jesus' change of residence from Nazareth to Capernaum by the sea is the prophecy of Isaiah 9 that we are reading now. It's that coming true. Jesus Christ is the light dawning on the peoples of those regions, ultimately both Jews and then Gentiles. That is who Isaiah 9 is speaking about. His coming is the fulfillment of this text God's redefinition of the future, his promise of grace, even in the context of judgment, is him sending Jesus, his son, into the world. So there's a double fulfillment of this prophecy. There was a short-term fulfillment during Old Testament times when the people returned from their literal exile. But by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, Matthew was able to see that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 9 was in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, What will begin as a physical liberation from exile when the original exiles used this same road, the way of the sea, to return from exile to their various hometowns in Israel. That culminates in the spiritual liberation that the age of Jesus will bring when all who go by his path leave the exile of sin and death and come home to eternal salvation forever through Jesus Christ. Matthew wants to link. It's very interesting. All through Matthew 4, he wants to link a specific geographical location with Old Testament prophecy. 
That's what he's doing there. Capernaum, near the Jordan River, by the Sea of Galilee, in a province populated with even more Gentiles in the first century than it would have been in Isaiah's day, will be the place where God's light shines into the darkness. Jesus Christ is salvation for all who call upon him. Look at verse 2 again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Again, past tense verbs are used to describe the future. You see that, which means from Isaiah's God's reckoning, the future is a matter of fact. That is the way it will go. The people of God will experience the glorious future prophesied for them back in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 through the triumph of the one Isaiah is about to describe in chapter 9, their Messiah. The tragic present, which is not God's final word, will become the past. These first two verses reflect the shift from the immediate future of those people to a time coming or to a time beyond their coming exile that will actually finally encompass all the nations. These verses come immediately before the promise of one who will not usher in a temporary time of restoration limited to one kingdom of the earth but an age of permanent justice that flows out from David's throne to the whole world. So this will be no mere mortal that Isaiah is prophesying of here. His light will shine on people who walk in darkness. God's grace will shine on sinners. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. When this light shines, God's remnant of faithful people will no longer be small. It will no longer ultimately be just localized. They will be a representation from all humanity, from every nation. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Again, do you hear all the past tense verbs? Do you see how sure the promise of God is? That's what the tense of those verbs means. God will liberate humanity as on the day of Midian, Isaiah says. That day in Judges 6 and 7 when Gideon, you remember, won that impossible victory over Midian completely by the power and the word of God. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Through whatever is coming, God will utterly destroy all of his enemies and put an end to every threat that remains to his people. Now, that will happen. All of that will happen. All of that is sure and certain in the future, even though judgment is the immediate present. Why? Why? That's verses 6 and 7. For, because, to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, there isn't just a what that is promised in Isaiah 9, but a who. The reversal of judgment, the light shining onto those who have known only darkness, according to Matthew in the New Testament, 
will be God's grace and justice personified in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The invincible one of verses 4 and 5 will be born into the world first as a child. A son will be given by God and his very name will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He will be a ruler whose wisdom is beyond human capability. Far beyond it. The Lord is his name. He will be the kindest of protectors and everlasting father. So not just the ideal king, but the one who cares for his people as God himself would care for his people. And he will bring peace, which again is not just the cessation, the end of conflict, but God's shalom as all the nations finally submit to his rule. The reign of David's heir, the Messiah Jesus, will increase. Do you see this? It will spread until it covers the entire cosmos. It will never end. It will never stop. It will include every nation. It will bring the blessing of knowing and being known by the one true God to every corner of the earth. From the gloom of anguish in chapter 8, God will bring the great light of salvation to those who have known only darkness. Where gloom was certain, God's grace will pierce it. So beloved, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise here is also to you and to me and to all who will hear the voice of God and his son Jesus Christ today. God redefines the future for his people and who are his people, all those in the darkness who have faith in the promised Son, their Savior, the Lord Jesus. He takes away this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, takes away our guilt. That's what changes the future. When guilt is taken away, when the debt we had is paid, the future we had earned changes to the future that God has written for us. Yes, the wages of sin is death. It's certain. We have disobeyed the Lord. We have dishonored him. Even if we try our best to be a good person, we still would have withheld from God the ultimate worship he is worth. We should be judged. That is what we have earned. That's the future we've bought for ourselves. We should be condemned. That's what justice demands. And if nothing outside of us changed us, we would remain condemned because we can't save ourselves. As much as man likes to think that he determines his own destiny, God determines the destiny of every human being. It is the word of God that will bring an end to human history. It is the word of God that will bring an end to mankind's rebellion. It is the word of God that will bring an end to man's autonomy, alleged autonomy. He's made promises about the end that he will keep. Everyone is guilty before him unless he steps in to change the story. And through the one promised all the way back in Isaiah 9, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything has changed. God's offer of grace in Isaiah spreads to the southern kingdom of Judah, to the northern kingdom of Israel, until finally all God's people from every nation drink from the wells of salvation. 
Out of judgment, Emmanuel will be revealed, God with us. And the new age will be inaugurated. And beloved, the day is coming that it will be consummated. And nothing anyone or any kingdom can do will thwart it. It is guaranteed by the word of God. Therefore, if the birth of Jesus means anything to us this morning, it certainly means we have hope. Hope. God's promise that he would send a child to be born into the world that would become all this for those in darkness, that gives hope to all mankind. Regardless of what they're facing now, because mankind is incapable of saving itself. We don't realize that's our biggest problem. That's the world's biggest problem. We're separated from our creator. We're estranged from our father and from our home. We're too devastated by sin and death to do anything from our end to make it right. To reconcile with our creator. There's no one in here this morning. There's no one in our lives. There's no one in our government or in our favorite movie or our favorite band or TV show or YouTube channel or family that can be our salvation. And the biggest evidence of the depth of our need is the fact that often we don't think we have it. There isn't hope this morning because we have it within ourselves to save ourselves. We don't. There's hope this morning because in spite of that, God is going to save anyway. That's his promise in Isaiah 9. That's the hope of Christmas when we get underneath it. That's why we're so happy why we sing these wonderful songs every year and they feel so new and so good. There's hope here. We know that the future we are writing for ourselves will be trumped by the word and power of Almighty God. The future the enemy is trying to write. The future the world is trying to write. There's no hope if those things are potential. But there is hope because they aren't. Because God reigns and rules over all the kingdoms of men, all nations, and every individual. He rules over my inability to save myself. This gives me hope. And hope is real because the only thing that guarantees what it hopes for is this God who can speak of the future in the past tense like it's already happened hundreds of years before it happens. Thousands of years. We just don't know exactly how many. At least thousands of years before it happened. This promise started in Genesis 3. And here we are in Isaiah 9 and God is simply reiterating, if you will, the fact that he is going to send someone to end this rebellion and to save his people. That's the basis of this hope. Past tense verbs are the basis of our hope, beloved. The gloom of anguish can be changed to the light of eternal salvation because God has the power to completely accomplish every single thing that he promises down to the details. Nothing that God has ever promised will be left unmet. His ability to do so is so sure that he can talk about the return from exile for them like it's already happened. That's confidence. That's confidence. You and I get confidence after the fact. I'm very confident today that the Ohio State Buckeyes will do fine against Michigan yesterday. Right? I was not confident Friday night. Right? I wasn't confident around the second quarter. 
I'm very confident now. You, you understand, right? You and I can't have that about the future unless God is writing our future. That God's confidence here to speak like he does through his prophet in the past tense, that confidence goes to work for you and me. Did you know that it's not just an attribute and it is, it's not just an attribute of God that he's sovereign and able to fulfill what he promises despite what's done to try to thwart it. That confidence is put to work for behalf of people, for sinners who don't deserve that mercy, who can't obtain that mercy on their own. God is a savior. That's what these prophecies are ultimately revealing about him, that he's a savior. This is who he is. Right? That's what Christmas means. If we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus, what it means is that God loves to save sinners and he'll do it in the most unbelievable way possible. God sees our future through the lens of what the son he sent will accomplish. Therefore, God sees even for me and you a fixed future. Did you know that this morning? Right? You want to talk about hope. Where does my hope come from? That my future is fixed. God makes the promises to us that he does because someone else is securing their keeping for me. This is what we've been seeing in Hebrews all these last months. His name is Jesus. My future is not open. Right? It's not open to God. My future is not the sum total finally of what I do or don't do. It doesn't mean I don't want to do anything that honors him. It simply means that my future is not dependent on those things. You see how it would damage my hope if it were? My future is not dependent on me. My future is fixed because it's fully dependent on the power and promise of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the hope that the coming of Jesus gives to me is much more than simply a positive feeling inside. I don't always feel hopeful, right? That, that's, that's not the reality of my hope. Whether or not the substance of it is true isn't even dependent on how I feel about it in any given moment. It's grounded. My hope is grounded. Our hope as his church this morning is grounded in a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. When God speaks of me, he speaks of my salvation in the past tense. As if you'll notice, the verb tenses of the New Testament will bear out. God's promise of a savior gives hope By redefining the future, turning it from one of certain judgment, the gloom of anguish, to pure eternal salvation. In verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible for what it's worth. It's just an amazing thought to give to his prophet. Right? It's not just God's irrevocable sovereign word of decree that gives me hope. Right? It's not just the fact that he says... You shall be, you will be. It's not just that, although that would be enough. It's the fact that he does not save me begrudgingly or with resentment. It's God's divine passion to save sinners 
It's his zeal that gives me hope. The fact that he wants to do this, nothing is forcing him. Nothing is preventing him. Is everyone okay? Is everything all right? We're okay? All right, all right. Everything's okay. Let's, let's pray for a moment, okay? Father, we ask for your peace and your grace and your hand to be upon the gentleman upstairs. I don't know what the issue is. I certainly don't want to embarrass him, but Father, I pray that you would be with him in this moment. May he have whatever he needs, Father, as quickly as possible. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Okay. We're almost finished here. My hope is as fixed as my future, right? Because of the one who designed and secures it for me. Don't forget that. This is for all who have faith in Jesus Christ, right? God, keeping his saving word has nothing to do with what you and I do or don't bring to the table. Our hope is not based in ourselves, but everything to do with his word and his will. Our hope is based completely in him. Let's pray. I'll be down front for a few moments. The altar will be open. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. If you've never called on Jesus Christ for your salvation, or maybe you've done so as the sermon has happened, I ask that you come forward. Let us know. Let us rejoice with you. Let us welcome you into the family. If that's what you want to do, and you don't know what to say, come and pray. Right? If you want to join our church, if you want to be baptized, now is the time to come and make that known. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, for your salvation. Father, for the hope that is ours, that is fixed, that is as fixed as your word over us about our future. We praise you for your son and we pray and ask these things in his name. Amen.
We're here once again this morning to take the Lord's Supper together in the bread and the cup that signify the broken body, the spilled blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We proclaim his death, the thing that saves us once more by remembering what he accomplished for us and how he did it. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Corey, would you pray for the bread, please? Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to come to your table. Lord, we thank you um, for your promise of hope. And may each of us um, look at our lives, but compare it to your life, and know that we will always fall short. But Lord, you are the one true answer for salvation. I pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the broken body of your son. We praise you that he was bruised on our behalf. And Father, we are thankful this morning as we look to you for our salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, in the power of your Holy Spirit. We take this bread in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dave, will you pray for the cup, please? Fathers, we come once again before your presence. We come with thankful hearts for your love and your mercy and your grace. And as we come to this ordinance to, to partake of the bread and the cup, we pray, Father, that we remember that this cup signifies, symbolizes your precious, pure, righteous blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. And we may um, just continue to remember this each day and appreciate it, Lord. And we might go forth from here being that servant that's a uh, good representation of Jesus in our lives. We ask these favors in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the spilled out blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, this is the hope, the guarantee of our salvation that seals us forever as your child. And so, Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, everyone. Just uh, to let you know what happened there. Somebody collapsed up in the balcony there. I couldn't really tell who it was, but Bob Glover may be a heart issue. And that was that the ambulance that they took, they took him there just now. So as, um, let's pray for him. Then we'll, uh, we'll sing our song and you all be dismissed. Reminder that the benevolence offering will be taken at both the exits. So please keep that in mind. Um, but, uh, let's, let's take a moment to pray for Bob before we sing our song together. All right. Father, we come before you on Bob's behalf. Lord, praying that you would be near to him. I pray, Father, it's not a major issue. I pray that everything's okay. I pray, Lord, that whatever it is, um, the, the, the doctors, the nurses, everyone that he's about to see would be able to identify it precisely, exactly, get him whatever help he needs. I pray, Lord, that he'll be home in the next few hours and then everything is fine. But, Father, if it's something more serious, would you please be near to him? Watch over him physically, meet every need that he has. We ask and pray uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.